must bring countries together to protect the southern ocean. Greening trade, ocean protection and governance. Greening agri-food, making agricultural production sustainable. The trade, environment and development nexus. Rethinking Europe. Hi, and welcome to Rethinking Europe, a podcast from Europe Jacques Delors, unveiling the nuts and bolts of environmental sustainability. My name is Gail Rego, and I am your host. This podcast will combine both stories and perspectives of junior policymakers and European residents, on the one hand, and senior policy experts and EU decision makers, on the other. The podcast is split into two parts, starting with a first-person narrative and followed by an interview. Let's get started. Today we're going to be talking about critical raw materials, or CRM. These refer to precious minerals like lithium, cobalt and tantalum that are essential to produce our laptops and mobile phones. But where do they come from? Why are they needed? And what are the huge impacts of this extraction on people and the environment in mineral-rich countries like sub-Saharan Africa? To understand the perspective and priorities of the EU, I'll be speaking with Cecil Bio, Head of the Trade, Investment, Climate, Entrepreneurship and Value Chains Unit at DG INTPA at the European Commission. Cécile Billot has been working for the European Commission for more than 15 years in various positions related to health, climate, development and trade. But before that, we'll hear from Diego Marin, the Policy Officer for Raw Materials and Resource Justice at the European Environmental Bureau. Diego will share how the EU's energy transition relates to our energy consumption, how just or unjust that consumption is, and the impacts that it has on the mineral-rich countries from where these critical raw materials are extracted. My name is Diego Marin. I work for the European Environmental Bureau. I'm originally from Peru, where I started basically this journey on critical raw materials. I lived there from a young age until I was 11 before moving to the United States. And then from the US, I moved to Belgium I decided to do my master's there, particularly related to international development, because I wanted to understand why countries are poor and why countries are rich, what makes them rich, what makes them poor, and how we can bring, of course, countries in the global south into a more higher standard of living. I think pretty much everyone who has studied international development has come from that kind of mentality, generally speaking. <laughs> So I'm currently working at the European Environmental Bureau. Well, I lead the team that is working on what is called critical raw materials from a holistic perspective. It's the industry that decides what critical means and the government's also supporting that. So it's important to understand that criticality is subjective. Different countries have their own levels of what they understand as critical. At least from the EU, there's two criteria for criticality. One of them is economic importance. So whether the raw material is essential for modern day economy, 
And then the other criteria is on the supply risk. So whether there is a high risk of supply disruption. In the case of cobalt, for example, there is a political instability in the world's largest sourcing country, which is the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And obviously the EU has concerns about the supply risk. So cobalt is also important for the battery manufacturing sector. So then obviously this metal scores high in both and is indeed deemed a critical raw material. We have two actually sections, the critical raw materials, which is 34 critical raw materials and a subsection of them, which is called strategic raw materials, which are important for the 15 technologies that the EU has deemed as crucial for its economy. And of course, these technologies range from military to drones, to digitalizations, to anything for the energy transition as well, such as batteries, wind turbines, solar panels, etc. At the EB, we look at the legal aspects of the law, particularly, for example, Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, work on the RS Convention related to environmental defenders. But then also we look at the energy transition, we look at raw materials from a socioeconomic perspective, we look into the geopolitics, we look into the international relations embedded within them, and what are the impacts that it has on countries in the Global South. I studied in Brussels, and then I had a project in Peru, which is where I went back to my home country and to learn really how does mining activity is impacting Peru itself. I went to Cajamarca, which is the most metallic endowed region in Peru and continuously scores as one of the poorest regions in the country. And when I was there, I, I did find one coming from Lima. We have this kind of perceived notion of the rest of Peru as being impoverished, anti-modern. So I had this background in my mind of, okay, what is to these environmental movement that we hear about in so much in Peru that stop these projects from, from actually taking place? Because the thing is, at least you speak to an economist, they will tell you that yes, mining activities do contribute positively to the national gross domestic product of Peru. I worked with an environmental NGO that was in the region, and I learned about how mining activities are happening there, how the environmental conflicts are unfolding, and how the government is responding to all of this. I learned about the surveillance that the NGO was dealing with in terms of trying to represent the communities there. And then also some of the deaths that occurred from the mobilization against the expansion of, for example, this mining project, which is called Yanacocha, which is was going to expand in the Conga mine. This Conga mining project was obviously going to increase that the level of production, but Conga didn't go through because of social mobilization. And so this was a big blow to the mining company. While I was there, I understood that people that are mobilizing against these mining projects do have a legitimate case. In many cases, what I saw was farming communities, largely depending on agricultural land, on a certain quality of water, of course, be pushed out, not only because their land was being bought off, but rather also because if mining activity was happening upstream, downstream, the heavy metals contaminations was actually impacting their livelihoods. So then people had to abandon their agricultural practices. And what this did is then they had to move into the city and the city itself was impacted by the incoming influx of internal migration. And shanty towns were built and prostitution goes up, 
crime rate goes up, destitution goes up as well. So it's interesting how all these complexities are not really fully understood within GDP or within what we call the economic benefit of mining companies. You see that the social fabric is deteriorating and then also you see uh, impact on prostitution, on crime, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Anyway, that's kind of my story. As we've heard from Diego Mara, CRMs are mainly critical for industry and the consequences of CRM extraction are complex, often affecting every aspect of the lives of local and indigenous communities, which has led to the deterioration of the social fabric, none of which is taken into account or factored into calculating the GDP, seen as the only metric of a country's economic growth. Now, we'll be speaking with Cecile Bio, Head of the Trade, Investment, Climate, Entrepreneurship and Value Chains Unit, about Europe's actions, role, plans and priorities going forward with regards to the growing need for CRMs, which has been identified as crucial to the green transition. Hi, Cecile. Welcome. We're so glad to be able to speak with you today about critical raw materials. Good morning. I'm also really happy to be here and to try to explain what we do in this field. Could you introduce yourself by giving us a brief overview of your professional experience at the EU institution, main areas of expertise and the objectives of your current position, Cecile? I'm currently in charge of private sector trade and value chain development, including critical raw material in DG International Partnership in the European Commission. So from water contamination to deforestation and child labor, we've heard quite a lot from Diego about the severe and crippling social and environmental consequences of the EU's demand for critical raw materials that are extracted from the global south. So please tell us what is the EU doing to address these life-threatening impacts on indigenous people and their communities, especially considering our increasing demand for CRM? And would you say that the EU has listened or is listening to the concerns from the global south in this regard? We cover a partnership with country outside of the EU and especially developing countries. So we cover Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and also Asian, Central Asian country. We enter into partnership with them to support an economy that is done in a sustainable manner. So all your concern, biodiversity, how you face climate change and on environmental issues and social issues, they are definitely included into the framework of our partnership. As regards critical raw material, of course, we see from our partner that there is a huge appetite to develop further. But what has happened in the past is over-exploitation of it and done in a way as that was not environmental friendly in most of cases. Now we are in a sort of new era where really this are at the top of our agenda and not only the EU agenda, but I think worldwide and the agenda of our partner too. So we look at how we can support them really to develop this critical raw material and the value chain and the economic aspects and the jobs that goes around it together with them. It's not easy, but there are more and more technological development, more and more way to mitigate this risk. As the EU, we are especially in a position where we are lacking a lot of these minerals. And if we don't have these minerals, then we cannot produce the goods 
nodes that goes with it, being the battery, being the solar panel, being the processing, the processors and so on. And then we cannot deliver on our objective of the green transition. So all in all, it's really much an approach which is based on a partnership. So we want to support them to do it in, in a way which is sustainable. And at the same time, of course, we want to have access to some of these minerals and to be able to deliver on our green objective. So speaking about these dependencies and partnerships, global decarbonization efforts that are led by countries in the global north risk deepening resource exploitation in the south, reinforcing historical dependencies. And in a recent publication that Europe Jacques Delors published, they call for a shift in the narrative from one focused on extraction to one that emphasizes environmental and social sustainability. Meanwhile, the EU has recently concluded several strategic partnerships on raw material value chains with resource-rich countries, including several countries in the Global South, some of which you've mentioned, such as the DRC, Chile, Namibia. So why are these partnerships important, do you think, especially in the context of resource extraction? And what do they consist of in practical terms that could enable this rebalancing or reshuffling of power? Or to put it plainly, to what extent will these partnerships benefit local people and support partner countries in their green transition and industrialization? These partnerships are not about extraction as such. It's about the whole value chain. Of course, extraction is one part of it, but the whole value chain of critical materials start already with exploration. And many countries have limited information to what is there. We know that there is cobalt there. We know there is graphite, but it's huge surface. We don't know exactly where it is. And so this work is very important because it will avoid and we have extraction all over the place, but we focus on this area where it's more important, it's more valuable. So it's exploration it's extraction, and then it's processing. This partnership is not only about going and extract raw material and then bringing it then back to Europe. That's exactly what we want to avoid. What we want to do is bring the value added also to our partner at local level. So if the raw material is extracted there, then we will push to make the different steps of each of the processing as much as possible at the local level. And then they will be served and integrated into the value chain also of our European industry. So that's really the philosophy of the strategic partnership. We go further and really integrate also all the recycling and the circular economy activity as a core component of our partnership. So it goes via the whole value chain, basically. That's exactly why we conceived our strategic partnership in different pillars. So we have this partnership which we sign with the country, and it's a very important political commitment, of course, but then we want to make them concrete, and we really have sort of defined six different areas where we look for cooperation with our partner, and one of them is skills and training, how we can support you to develop the right skill and training. Second one is all the ESG, so environmental and social aspect, how we can support you to respect this environmental social aspect. Third pillar is everything about energy and infrastructure, because it's not only about the extraction there, it's having the energy sources. It's it's very intensive in terms of energy, of course, to create any CRM activity. Do you have the right energy and how we can make this energy sustainable? The fourth pillar is a lot about the research and development. I say technology is very, very important. It has improved a lot in the past years and it's still improving on a daily basis. And then the fifth one is the sort of how you 
bring the investment, the business side of it. So we look basically at the full range of things and seeing not only like we want to have an investment to do CRM extraction, we're looking at the all the all approach, the all value chain and how we can create there the full proposal that will deliver into sustainable mining related investment in this country. You talked about ESG. So are there any mechanisms in place to ensure that the mining boom promoted and facilitated by these partnerships respect and uphold environmental sustainability, human rights of the local communities and indigenous people? And how do they contribute to tackling illegal and irresponsible mining in partner countries? I talked a little bit before that the EU adopted the CRM Act proposal. Now the plan is that it should enter into force this spring, around March, April. The CRM Act definitely has a key component also on sustainability. We also have, of course, the Corporate Sustainable Development CS3D Directive, which is in place. And one of the key sectors that is mentioned in the CS3D is mining. You also have the Battery Directive. And all these frameworks will set the rules from a legal point of view and regulatory point of view on how we can define also sustainable mining. That being said, there are already a lot of mechanism available, being in terms of international initiative or certification initiative that really assist the private sector into shaping what sustainable mining is about. So we're not starting from scratch. There are a lot of mechanisms. OECD has also specific guidance about it. Uh, we are supporting as the EU, the EITI, the Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative. There are about 70 countries in the world are member of the EITI. Many of them are in our partner country, in Africa, Latin America, and so on. And this is a partnership which obliges you as a country to make transparency and all the data about mining, also the environmental and social impact of your mining activity. So, yes, there are a lot of tools, maybe a bit too many, but we try to really um, make them practical and have our partner country to look at them and to implement them so that we know exactly what activity are taking place, they are made public, and then they are prevent at least illegal activity to take place. Cecile, can you give us one concrete example of a win-win partnership with a resource-rich country that is particularly promising, you think? And also tell us why. We signed a Namibia partnership, I think it was now a year ago. We look at doing the roadmap together, being concrete with defining the activity. And now we have to put that into concrete and start implementing. So I would say it depends what you define by being win-win and being successful. We haven't yet reached that phase of delivery. But if we take the Namibia partnership, for example, for them, this was very important to combine this partnership together with green hydrogen because they have a huge potential for green hydrogen. So in this case, we combine green hydrogen and critical material and we did this partnership which encompasses the two areas. And for them, it was very, very important and they pushed a lot to get this green hydrogen component. And I think this is a win-win in a sense that by having a more uh, green hydrogen cooperation and investment, it will really support the development of the critical raw material value chain because it is very energy intensive. And if you have a green energy like green hydrogen, it really could be used to develop the CRM processing stage. So all in all, it fits together and one will really help to deliver on the other and why they will move up the processing value chain and then this critical raw material that they don't need for their own market or the regional activities and they will also provide back to Europe. 
When it comes to international cooperation, we've heard that the EU is set to launch a critical raw materials club to help both resource-rich and big consumer countries pool investments and diversify the supplies of strategic raw materials away from dominant markets like China. Can you tell us more about the club and what is the purpose of this competition with China? When we announced that we're going to create a club, a CRM club, the idea behind is that we need, of course, much more cooperation between countries around the world that need resources, but also countries who are resource-rich. And this is very true for the EU, for example. We are strong in certain aspects of the value chain of the industry. We are very good in equipment. We are very good in technology. We are good in some of the processing. We don't have a huge industry in terms of extraction and so on. Other countries like Australia, Canada do have. So if we all join forces together and have some common priority, we can achieve more, both inside the EU, but also with partners outside the EU. So we said, let's create the CRM club. In the meantime, because many activities happen on CRM in the past year and the past month, there has been many other bilateral initiatives taking place. And indeed, the ambition would be really to look at how it helps us to cooperate with others, to exchange what we are doing, to see what others would want to do, and to try to find a common ground between all the partners. We know that high-income nations are responsible for up to 74% of global excess material use, driven primarily by the US and the EU, for instance. Even though the EU makes up only 6% of the world's population, it consumes 25 to 30% of metals that are produced globally, while the total consumption for countries in the global south responsible is only 8%. So despite this, the EU seems hyper-focused on securing access to more resources. But shouldn't the EU prioritize the need to reduce raw material consumption and promote circularity given its big material footprint? How can we effectively reduce our demand for CRMs while working towards our ambitious climate objectives? Ideally, we would love to say, <laughs> let we stop extracting and we're only going to do recycling tomorrow. But the reality of it is that it, we are not yet capable of doing it. It's not that easy to recycle from a form a huge quantity of the minerals. But of course, this is a priority. And I fully agree that the objective would be really to be able to recycle as much as possible and make less waste as we can and really use what is there already in our use material and to recycle them. We still need to make progress, have technologies there that are able to really separate the materials and be able to use them again. So all this, we are investing a lot into that and we have very good hopes that it will happen, but this will take time. So in the meantime, there is no other solutions than using new, so to say, critical raw material. That being said, it's not only critical raw materials that we're going to extract as completely new from the ground. Because in many cases, we are looking at projects today that are using the waste, the tailings, basically, of mining that has been done 20 or 30 or 50 years ago. And of course, at that time, they were maybe looking only for gold in most of the case, or for diamonds, or they were looking for one of the minerals that was important at this stage, not, for example, for lithium. And they were like leaving the rocks aside in the landscape 
unused. We have lots of this in Africa. And now what we are looking at with our partner is how this tailings, this waste there, which contains still a lot of critical raw materials that we may want to extract, including rare earths, which is really something that the EU is keen to have. And there is really an over, I think China has 99% overall of rare earth in the world. So we are over dependent. But if this is something that is considered as weight today or part of tailings and could be really used using modern technology to get new raw material out of the waste that was done years ago in the mining. That's very interesting. Um, Cecile, can you tell us what the main or key achievements and shortcomings of the current commission in the field of critical raw materials are, in your opinion? And what do you think the main priorities should be for the next EU cycle? We have been working so hard on doing the CRM Act to put really a boost and a legal framework boost to our strategy to both develop CRM value chain in Europe and outside of Europe. Now, if all goes well, it's going to enter into force this spring. Then it's a lot to be done to implement it. And I think for me, the priority will be to deliver on what we have put on the CM Act. It includes a lot of structures, new structure to be put in place for cooperation, for putting new strategic projects, for delivering. And this is something that will be time-consuming and that we need to implement properly. And to do that, it's not a matter of only having one or two meetings. It will last a number of years until things are going to really start to deliver. And this is our last question, actually. Do you have any final messages you'd like to convey either to our listeners or other organizations who may be interested or working in this field of CRM? Yes, maybe one point, because I think there are a lot of misconceptions still about mining. I think mining is still seen as a very dirty activity. And this is true. It can be in some cases. I'm not saying it's not. But what I want to say, it has changed a lot. Mining is no longer how you can see it in some movies in the past, in the 50s or so on. Mining today, it uses really new technology, sustainable and green mining can be done. We are meeting some companies who are really using sustainable energy to do mining, using the best technology to recycle the water and to use the water that is needed in the process to recycle it, to clean it and to reuse it back into the process. We see them employing, and I was before Christmas in Rwanda, and we saw the European company employing only local people, training them, bringing them some skill, having really good condition with health and safety and so on. We want to support this sustainable mining activities that are doing their best to have the least impact on the environment and also delivering social benefits in terms of training, in terms of jobs to our partner country. Thanks very much, Cecile, for those positive words. That really brings us to the end. We just want to say thank you very much for joining us today. I'm sure we've all learned a lot. Thank you. Dear listeners, Thanks for listening to the third episode of Rethinking Europe, a podcast by Europe Jacques Delors. Europe Jacques Delors is a Brussels-based think tank dedicated to environmental sustainability in Europe. Thanks to a dynamic team of policy analysts, Europe Jacques Delors conducts high-level research on greening agri-food and trade, as well as ocean protection and governance. If you'd like to learn more about the EU's policies and stance on critical raw materials, check out the resource A Pro-Development Green Trade Agenda for COP28, 
on our website www.europejacquesdelors.eu.